Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. I guess uh, Pastor Bessie and Pastor Jet, uh, and Pastor Ben want me to discuss uh, the coronavirus a little bit. I am no expert. Uh, <laughs> I am no expert, but uh, Psalm 91 is an incredible psalm, and it gives us, uh, I think, a perspective that will go a very long way in life if we follow what Psalm 91 says. So this morning, I am very excited to preach on Psalm 91. Uh, But before I do, let's uh, open up in a word of prayer, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Gracious Father, we come before you, and we draw near to you with confidence. You remind us of that this morning through the book of Hebrews, because you, Lord Jesus, through your blood, as high priest, made a way for us to come to you. And when we do come, Lord, you give us grace the very things that we need to live a life well for you, for your glory and the benefit of your people and this world. You are also simultaneously the God of all illumination. Your spirit searches the depth of you and therefore able to communicate truth to us. So we ask that you would grant us illumination and that we would find our lives in your story. And I pray that that narrative would guide everything that we do rather than what we hear on the news, or even what emerges from our own hearts. So Lord God, remind us that our lives are hidden with you. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Uh, This was a a pretty easy sermon to prepare for because uh, I got an email from uh, Pastor Ben and Pastor Jesse, this is the text, preach on it, and I said, okay, great. Uh, I'm so glad, I bet you if we did a Google search uh, and looked at all these different churches, I bet you during this time period, Psalm 91 is one of the Psalms that is really being preached all throughout the world because it is our antidote to fear. Because the wisdom that is contained here is absolutely amazing. And I said, as I said in the introduction, I think if we heed the words here, it will help us not just through the season, but every step of our lives. And as I was uh, meditating on the Psalm, Um, I saw the structure of the psalm as something absolutely beautiful. Because on the one hand, there is a confession. And this confession is not made in a hypothetical situation. It is made in the context of real fear. So there is a, a confession in fear, and there is a response. And the one who responds is God. And when you put those things together, you have some incredibly robust theology that works in our daily lives in the context of difficulties, trials, persecutions, pestilence and plagues and enemies trying to kill us. Whatever it is, there is power uh, as we look at this psalm. Um, And that is definitely good news for us. Now, before I look at what that confession is, let me just say that this psalmist um, is fully aware of what is going on in his life. And he's fully aware of what other people may be suffering as well. And the language that he uses underlines the difficult situations that he is in and other people are in as well. And so he talks about things like a fowler. And um, most of us today probably don't know what a fowler is. And a fowler is one who captures fowl. It's a bird catcher. Uh, So you could imagine Uh, what a fowler is doing to a bird, 
And if you can look at it from a bird's perspective, it's terrifying because there's this fowler out there trying to catch you so that they could probably eat you. And so there is fear there. And so the psalmist is likening his own life or the lives of those who are in his situation to a bird and there's someone out to get him, to destroy him or to destroy them. And he goes on to say, look at his language, the terror of night. I mean, I think there's a, a deep spiritual quality here. And therefore, this psalmist or those who he's representing, they are experiencing these night terrors. At night, they can't sleep because terror surrounds them. And so he sees once again the difficulties that there are. Then he also talks about the arrow that flies by day. So even during the day when you should have peace and comfort, there is no peace and comfort because there is this arrow that flies by day. So on the one hand, at night there's terror, there's arrows during the day, there is no rest for the psalmist, and therefore the psalmist knows the difficulties and the trials that people go through. Then look at his language as he goes a little further. He talks about pestilence. So it's not even about enemies, it's about the natural order and there's pestilence there. And then he goes on to talk about plagues. I mean, if you think about it, this. The psalmist has a really 360-degree view of the difficulties that are out there. And he says it takes place at night. It takes place during the day. And he goes on to say it takes place in darkness. And it takes place during midday. So everything seems difficult for this psalmist. And I think we can relate because we live in a fallen world. You know, as I was meditating on this, I really thought about the fowler a lot. Because a lot of you guys are in, in the workforce and you're working and I think you've experienced this. People are out to get you. They want to bring you down. And I know that many of you will completely relate because in a, a world uh, that is ruled by mammon, that is money, and in a world that is ruled by fallen pride, People will try to bring you down. So you might understand this, this psalm in a, in a very special way. So this psalmist sees. It's not hypothetical. It's not just merely theological and abstract. He paints this picture in concrete ways to say, these are the difficulties that I'm going through. My friends might be going through. My country might be going through. My kinsmen and those who read. But there is a confession. Here's his confession. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Yes, there is pestilence, but he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There are plagues out there. There are fowlers trying to kill me. My enemies surround me at night, midday, in the darkness, in the midday, uh, in, in, in midnight. Yet, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So this confession comes in the midst of this psalmist's trials and difficulties. And I think the first point that we need to internalize and take home is our words matter. Our confession matters. What we fill our minds and our hearts with, they matter. 
Because we need a narrative that flows not from the world. We need a narrative that doesn't even flow from our fallen natures. We need a narrative that flows and is rooted in God. And so the psalmist, despite what he sees, despite what is happening to him, says, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so what is front and center, what is absolutely important for the psalmist is his confession. And so he begins the psalm with a confession in view of all these difficulties. Let me give you a small example um, of what I mean by this. And it's a silly example. And uh, some of you guys will probably laugh. Now, I work at a school and... uh, we have coffee and tea throughout the day, and sometimes I get a little sleepy, so I need a, a second cup of coffee. But then my office is on the third floor, and the coffee machine is on the second floor, and sometimes I'm a little lazy if I'm on the second floor or even the first floor to go all the way upstairs, we have no elevator, and come all the way down to the second floor to refill my coffee cup. So I just go there, and I take someone else's cup. <laughs> it's kind of a communal cup, so it, it's okay. And there is one cup that is really big. And on those days where I'm a little sleep deprived, I take that cup. But it is a cup that says Proverbs 31. And Proverbs 31 is the chapter on uh, a virtuous woman. And on the rim, it says, you are an amazing woman. (laughs) So I fill that cup with coffee. And every time I drink, I read, you are an amazing woman. And uh, even my daughter Sophie comes to my office, Dad, you know the cup says you're an amazing woman. I say, I know, Sophie. But the more I drink from that cup, there's power. There is real power. I, I feel that I am, I am an amazing person because these are the words of God at every sip. And I probably take like 20, 30 sips until I finish that cup of coffee. So 20 or 30 times within the span of 30 minutes, you are an amazing woman. Or you are an amazing person because of who God made you to be. And you are amazing because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that theology I drink in with that coffee. And it does something to me. It doesn't just wake me up, but I feel strengthened inside. I feel lighter. I feel that I am an amazing person, not because of who I am, of course, but because of what God in Christ has done for me. And so this psalmist sees what's going around him And yet the psalmist is able to say, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And he's able to do that because his meditation is not so much on the plagues and pestilence and the arrow that flies by day or the terrors at night or the fowler who's trying to bring him down. His meditation is upon God. And so right in the middle of the psalm, there is this beautiful imagery. And it says here, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. I mean, that's beautiful. And where where is he getting this imagery from? He's getting this imagery from all of Scripture. Now, believe it or not, if you look at redemptive history, it's punctuated with the feathers of God. And you might be thinking, what is this guy talking about? I mean, look at this imagery here. So God would hover over you. He will cover you with his feathers, right? And you'll be under his feathers. And he will be, you will be under his wings. And because you are under his wings, you will find refuge. He will be your shield. He will be your rampart. The imagery there is a very avian imagery. 
So God is like a bird, and his feathers are over the psalmist. We can say his feathers are over you. You are under his wings. You are protected. And every step of redemptive history, we see that imagery to underline that God is faithful. And so right in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, what's the first imagery of God that we see? It's the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. He's like this bird, and he's hovering over the chaotic waters that try to undo the things of God, and he subdues it because he is the divine conqueror, and he's the one who protects his people, and out of the midst of that chaos, he brings order and life. And so when the Israelites are going around in the wilderness, and they're going through difficulties and hardships, and there are trials and there are tribulations, all they need to do is look up. And when they look up, what do they see? They see the presence of God as a cloud. He's hovering over his people. And so the people are saying, God is our avian God. He is the God who hovers over us, and we are under the shadow of his wings. And even when they were in Egypt, this is really powerful. And the plagues are taking place. And God says through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may go and worship me. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 time and time again. He says, well, there's going to be a tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And so the, the spirit of death goes, so the angel of death goes to destroy the firstborn. But then God, through Moses, tells the Israelites, well, put the, uh, take the hyssop and put the, the blood of the, the animal on the, the, the doorposts so that this, that um, angel of death will pass over. But if you look at the language very carefully, either in Hebrew or in Greek, you know, there's a case to be made that it should not be called the feast of the Passover. There is a case to be made that it should actually be called the feast of cover over. Because the Spirit of God hovered over the Israelites' houses. And so, death did not touch them. And so God is protecting his people. So God is, as this psalmist says, covering over his people with his feathers. They are under the shadow of his wing. And it's no wonder that when the psalmist is going through something difficult in different psalms, what is the psalmist's cry? Lord, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Now, if you think about it, from the perspective of the New Testament, this image doesn't go, doesn't go away. Uh, Jesus likens himself to a hen, right? Remember, he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets. How I wish I could put you under my wings. But you were unwilling. So where's God's heart? His guard, heart longs to hover over his people. His heart longs to protect his people. He longs to give security to his people. That's where God's heart is. And so the psalmist um, sees that. And therefore what fills his heart and fills his mind, what is the, the, the center of his meditation is not the pestilence, not the plagues, not the darkness, not the arrows, not the fowler, but who God is the God who protects, the God who is present, the God who is with him. 
And so the point is, friends, yeah, we're being bombarded with news about the coronavirus and, you know, if it's not the coronavirus, it's, you know, how the markets are going to spin out and everyone's going to get poorer. And if it's not the markets, then it's one nation fighting another nation. If it's not, it's automation and our kids will have no jobs in 20, 30 years. And if it's not, it's something else. It, this, it's all the spin. And there's never a time when anyone says it's all good. <laughs> I mean, no news channel will make any money. Everything will go out of business. You have, there has to be fear right? because fear sells. And so if we're not careful, what happens is our narrative becomes that narrative. And if we're not careful, then those things get the better part of our hearts and our minds. I'm not saying those things are unimportant. No, they're absolutely important. We'll look at that in, in a second. But I think the lesson we can learn from this psalm is, yes, he's aware. The psalmist is fully aware. He's not naive. Yet, at the same time, he chooses to meditate on God who has wings, the God who protects, the God who is present, the God who is with him, and the God who is for him. And so we need to hide our lives in Christ. And so what we need to do is to have a narrative of our lives that is lost in the narrative of God. And so our confession must always be the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our fortress. And in him we trust. That's our confession. That confession at the end of the sermon will come a little bit deeper in view of the New Testament, uh, but that should be the, the, the foundation of our confession. And so when we look at the psalm, uh, it's not just that we have a confession. At the end, it's something really amazing. We have a response. So we don't know too much about Psalm 91. Um, I looked at some of the commentaries. No one knows who wrote it. No one knows the context in which it was written. But if I use my imagination, it's probably something close to this that I wouldn't be far off. The psalmist is going through a difficult time. I think everyone would, would agree with that. And so he cries out to God and his meditation is upon God. I think at that point, uh, the psalmist, because the psalmist is godly, probably knows other very godly people. And so this psalmist probably, within his network of friends, um, he probably knew a prophet. And so as he's bearing his heart out to God, he goes to this prophet and he says, I don't know who this person is, right? It could be one of the early prophets, it's maybe Elijah, I don't know who it is. Goes to this prophet and confides in this prophet. And this, this, this man of God or this woman of God who is the spokesperson of God and knows God goes to God, he's thrust into God's presence and God downloads something to this prophet and this prophet then shares the word of God to the psalmist. And so when the psalmist is filled with inspiration and he's writing the psalm at the end, he is able to take the words of the prophet and the word of God then and put it in to his confession, his confession then elicits a response from God himself. It's not just theological reflection. These are the words of God to the psalmist in his trial and so forth. Therefore, at the end, he quotes God. And this is what he says. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. 
He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So isn't this an amazing psalm? The psalmist knows the difficulties, knows the hardships, knows the dangers, but knows God even more and chooses to meditate upon him. And therefore, God responds, I will protect you. To put it in other words, you just pray to me that you will find shelter under me. I will give you shelter. You said that you are, you believe that I am your fortress. God says, yeah, I will be your fortress. You have honored me. I will honor you. You've looked to me. I will bless you. And that's the response. Now, the beauty of the psalm is it's, it's connected to a whole you know, redemptive narrative that goes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see how the theology of Psalm 91 is fleshed out, um, ultimately speaking, through um, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we look at it from that perspective, um, we see amazing love and we see amazing grace. And the amazing love and the grace is that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So the only one that the father did not protect is actually the son. So the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did the son cry that out? Because he was actually rejected by the father. He felt the father's abandonment. So there was no shelter for the son. There was no refuge for the son. There was no strong tower for the son. The fowler did catch him upon the cross, and he was beaten, and he was mocked, suspended between heaven and earth, and ultimately killed, and he uh, breathed out his last breath. And so he was not protected. And so he is slain upon that cross. And you know, that becomes the basis of why God is our strong tower, because he dealt with sin. He dealt with death because the cross leads ultimately to the resurrection and the vindication of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the upshot for all of you here, me and you, is that these words are eschatologically true. They're perfectly true. They're sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we say that the Lord is our refuge and our strength, our strong tower, our shield, that we are under the shadow of his wings, it is more true than you can ever imagine because it's finished through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our confession. That's our new confession. And therefore, if anyone can have security, it's the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one in this world that can have greater security than the believers in Jesus Christ because he is our refuge and our strong tower. And he is the head who put us under and when the sting of death came, he still protected us and that hen died to protect us, but he rose again. And it's his spirit that protects us. And if you think about it from a theological perspective and you take a step back, it's really talking about the canopy of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who protects us. And as Gordon Fee taught us long ago, the spirit of God is always present, powerful, and personal for all of you and all, you know, every, all the believers. And so this confession is grounded in the death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit of our Lord. So it's even more powerful than Psalm 91 because we see how the story ends. 
Now, I need to become a little more practical here, um, lest anyone misunderstand me. Um, I am not saying that because we believe in Jesus Christ, we will have security from these things, okay? I think there's plenty of passages in scripture that would argue against that. But what I am saying is that we will have security in whatever we go through. Not from what we go through, but in what we go through. Let me give you two examples. The first example, and it's my, one of my favorite examples, is the martyrdom of Stephen. Um, Stephen was this, this godly, godly man. This, this, one of the first deacons of the church, right? Really godly. Um, selfless, and one of the reasons why he was a, a deacon is because he was selfless and impartial, filled with the Spirit of God. And so when uh, false charges were brought up against him, the Apostle Paul, then Saul, was there. He approved. He had all the coats of the people who were throwing stones. Kill him, Paul was saying. And so as he was being stoned, the, the one who covered over him was, was Jesus. The one who protected him was Jesus. The one who was faithful to him was Jesus. And so we see Psalm 91 operate in the life of Stephen in his martyrdom. So you can, you can imagine these people throwing these you know, decent sized, like, you know, softball-like stones and hitting him. And he probably you know, took a knee because he got hit really hard. And then other people came and like bashed him and he's bleeding. And what, is, what does scripture say? The scriptures say his face shone like an angel. You know, if I were to take a guess, he might not have felt actually pain. God might have protected him from that. And then God gave a vision, right? And this vision was, he looked up to heaven, right? His, his face is shining like an angel's face. He sees heaven, the curtains are drawn back, and he sees Jesus standing. I mean, it, we're going through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All the scripture he sits. There's only one place he stands. He's standing at the martyrdom of Stephen. And he's standing at the martyrdom of Stephen because on the earthly court, Stephen is standing for him. In the heavenly court, the Son of Man, Jesus, is standing for Stephen. And so when Stephen sees that, he's filled with encouragement and strength. He sees the outstretched arms of his Savior and he dies a good death. And he sparks a revival. I'm sure the Apostle Paul never forgot that scene. And I bet you in Paul's martyrdom, he thought of Stephen. He says, Lord, help me to honor you as Stephen honored you. So he experienced Psalm 91. And what was the outcome? He died well. It's not security from martyrdom. It's security in martyrdom. You see the difference? Now, consider the Apostle Paul. Um, Pastor Ben and I, and a couple of a couple others in this room, I see Teresa visiting, we were on a, a prayer march this summer, right? Um, and on this prayer march, um, we took a car uh, from these two places, okay? Uh, Troas to Assos. Um, if you take old Roman roads, it's 31 miles. Okay? The Apostle Paul was a great strategist and he loved people. He didn't want people to walk those 31 miles. It's tough. If you could take a boat, it's much more relaxing, the, co the cool air, you know. 
talking, you know, with your friends and talking about whatever. And so he made arrangements. And so his friends took a boat. But Paul says, I'll meet you there. It probably took Paul two days to walk that. And the more I reflect upon that, um, the more I am convinced that Paul needed to walk 31 miles and take two, maybe three days. Knowing Paul, such a tough guy, probably took like a day and a half. <laughs> but um, during that time, he probably walked alone. And it's poetic. It was his time alone with God walking down this path which mimics Jesus' walk to Golgotha or Calvary, or it's Jesus' quote-unquote walk in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because there were at least three prophecies that were given to the Apostle Paul by people who loved him. And these three prophecies basically say the same thing. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Because if you go to Jerusalem, um, there is persecution. Every time we pray, Paul, the Holy Spirit says... There's persecution for you when you go to Jerusalem. And so, three people within two chapters tell Paul, don't go. But this is how prophecy works in the book of um, Acts. It has to resonate with you. And so Paul probably contemplates for two days as he's walking 31 miles, Lord, what do you want me to do? Should I listen to Agabus, your prophet? Should I listen to my companions and not go up to Jerusalem? Or should I go? So he walks a mile, walks 10 miles, and he's wrestling, Lord, my life is not my own. My goal is to finish the race and to fulfill the call that you've put upon my life. Lord, if you want me to die for you in Jerusalem, I will die for you in Jerusalem. Just tell me what you want me to do. After those 31 miles, he sets his face like flint and he goes to Jerusalem because now he is fully convinced in the deepest recesses of his heart that's exactly where God wants him to go. And so he goes. As soon as he gets there, he is the Paul that we know. He is testifying and he is preaching at the temple courts. He causes a riot and the people grab him. Okay? Now the text doesn't say they beat him, but they probably beat him pretty badly to, to the point of almost dying. They drag him and they're about to kill him. And they're probably punching him and kicking him and spitting at him. You know, people probably biting him, you know, taking cheap shots. And so there's this uproar. There's always Roman centurions and other soldiers there because this, this part of the world is very um, volatile. And so the Romans put a stop to this. They take Paul and so that he wouldn't be killed. And so the prophecies are true that he's getting beaten already on day number one. And so uh, they, they sequester him. They try to get to the bottom of this. And the people... They were not successful in killing Paul, but they probably give him a pretty good beatdown. So 40 people make a pact. This is the stupidest pact ever. We're not going to eat until we kill him. Well, technically they should have all starved to death because they didn't kill him. <laughs> you know, it would have been funny if the text was, well, the 40 men who took the pact to kill him without eating, they died <laughs> on day 43. You know? We don't know. Um, but God was watching over Paul. So this is crazy. This is, this is, you can't make this stuff up. Paul's got a little nephew, probably a little runt of a guy, and he overhears the 40 guys, we're going to kill Paul. We're not going to eat, and so we're going we're to get him. Let's get him out, and we're going to kill him. And so he tells, um, I believe it's the centurion, and uh, so, oh, thank you for letting me know. And so they're going to move him someplace else. And so what happens, um, because they get wind of this, 
the Roman garrison there, they said, we want 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen, 470 total to guard Paul to ultimately get uh, to, to higher levels of authority. And not just the higher levels of authority, ultimately speaking, God wanted him not only to testify in Jerusalem, but also to testify in Rome, so he goes to Rome. So we can say once again, Psalm 91, different outcome for the Apostle Paul, but the same principle applies. That same principle is God gave security in these difficulties, not from these difficulties. The outcome is God's. But what is true is that we can always experience the comfort and the security and the protection of God, whether we are Stephen, the Apostle Paul, or any one of us in this room, because we have faith and we are in and we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is how I will close. And so, the world has one narrative. We have a different narrative. Our narrative is as different as it can be from the world's narrative. And so when um, difficulties happen in life, and who knows what's gonna happen with the coronavirus, I have no clue, okay? It can get much worse, it can just get away. I heard pharmaceutical companies are coming up with some drugs, the Lord bless them and help them. Um, who knows what will happen? But the difference should always be our narratives. And when, when our narratives are different, and when we are in sync with the narrative of God, and when we meet the God of scriptures in his word through his spirit, it will change us. And we will have a completely different outlook. And so where there is fear, we are filled with love. And when people are preparing because of fear, we're also preparing because of love. And if people are making decisions in fear, we are making decisions because of love and because of security, the security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I'm not saying to our congregation here that we should not worry. No, we should be responsible, we should be wise. God has given us a mind. And we see that this Psalm is actually quoted in the wilderness when Satan, Satan tempts Jesus and so Satan takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple. Jump down, Jesus, because if you jump down, it says in Psalm 91 that the angels will grab you and you will not dash your feet. And Jesus, don't test God. So we don't want to test God. We're not going to say, hey, God, you know, you're going to protect me and you're my shield, so bring it. Bring the corona. Bring it. I'm a magnet. Take it. Give it to me. I'm going to do whatever. I mean, that would be foolhardy, right? So we should, we should be responsible. Right? So I'm saying we should be responsible. But at the same time, the motivation of our heart is love, not fear, not self-preservation, but the care of others. And therefore, when the church gets it right in times of plagues, the church always grows. So I, I, I want to share this. I'm going to be guarded at the same time. Um, whenever things like this happens, it is an opportunity for the church to grow. It's an opportunity for the kingdom of God to break in. Because this is when the world sees that we are the disciples of Christ because we are different. We're motivated by something different. We have a different call. We have a different DNA. We have different hearts because we have the spirit of God and his story.
and we have the Lord Jesus Christ who did it all for us upon the cross. And so I'll share with you um, the plague that took place um, or something similar took place in, in China, which is SARS, okay? That's the most recent comparison. And you know, some of us in this room are, are lucky enough to know one of the architects, or probably the architect of the church during Beijing in the, the time of SARS. And when SARS hit, um, there's a lot of misinformation and the fear was ramped up tremendously because even though when we look in retrospect, um, there weren't a, a ton of deaths. I think Corona has passed um, SARS in terms of death, but the mortality rate SARS was greater. They were able to contain it and it was less infectious. But there was a rumor uh, that it had gotten airborne. So all of Beijing, you know, a city of roughly 20 million people was, was a ghost town. And uh, the elders of the International Church had an emergency meeting and uh, they petitioned the government uh, to, to create care packages for university students. Um, and uh, in the care packages, they would put uh, Bible tracts uh, and Christian literature. And at that point, everyone was so scared that the government actually said, yes, do whatever you want, just get the food and uh, material to our students. So the international community, after praying and reflecting, uh, they decided not to leave, but to stay and to go on the college campuses to serve and love. And when they went to serve and love, all the taxi cab drivers, which would drop them off like, you know, like three football field lengths from the university, because you're crazy if you're gonna go there. And they all began to say, if you're gonna do this because you believe in your God, your God is real, and I'm gonna believe in your God too, because I can't believe you're actually going to do this. And Beijing became a different city, because they saw people who could have left, decided to stay, who didn't need to serve, but chose to serve, that could have hoarded, but gave in generosity to people they did not know because of the security and the love that they experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the annals of the church, whenever there was a plague, the church had experienced hardships, just like everybody else. But Christianity broke through, the kingdom of God broke through because the believers were always different. Psalm 91, friends. The beautiful confession. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Friends, let's be meditators. Let it seep into joint and marrow, the deepest parts of our hearts, and we will be responsible. We will prepare we will take precautionary measures like everybody else, but we will also love. We will also be free from anxiety. We will also go the extra mile and we will serve. That's the difference, okay? Security in, not from. All rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Lord who is with you. So why don't we do this, guys? Um, this will be really, I think, encouraging. Let's uh, bow our heads for a moment. And if Evan can come up, he'll strum away on his nice-sounding Taylor guitar. Nice and crisp. I think he's got some new strings. It sounds great. 
or it's his feather fingers, no pun intended to the passage here. Um, and I, you know, I, I love what the early church did. And what the early church did is, you know, probably because they didn't have like, you know, a codex, right, a Bible that they could uh, readily open up to. They had these bulky scrolls um, until, you know, a couple of centuries afterwards and the people got together but uh, there was always an opportunity for people to lift up prayers. And, you know, if, when, when I look at this community, it's not like we're like a thousand people um, where it can get a little unruly. I mean, this is like, you know... Soon. Soon, soon. Yeah. It's, uh, it's more like a, a family in a decent-sized suburban living room. Right? And, and so... I think what can be encouraging is just giving you guys an opportunity, and I would say you don't have to stand up. You can just, if you want to stand up to be more audible, that's fine too. But I want to just give you an opportunity to speak into the East Village and speak into New Europe, what God has placed upon your heart. And you can lift up prayers based upon this. And I think when we do that, it, seem, it might seem a little, you know, kind of silly or like, you know, whatever, but I think God will honor that. And they will be great encouragement for the people of God. So in a very, and this is my Presbyterian side coming in, even though, you know, I transferred to the CRC. Uh, let's do this orderly, okay? You know, the Presbyterians are known for good order. Um, so whoever wants, I will open us. Whoever wants to pray can pray. We'll just go for a couple of minutes. And let's just declare and pray and petition God. And then when it gets quiet, I will close us. Gracious Father, our confession is you are our refuge. Yes, you are our shield. Hallelujah. You are our God, and we put our trust in you. Make it so, Lord. Yes. Make it so for this congregation. Teach us to trust you. Yes. It's your opportunity now, so don't be shy.
gracious Father, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for courage. And as we stand up for you, as you stand up for us, we pray that your spirit will break out and uh, touch many people uh, in New York. Let me close this at this time then. Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for your words. Uh, it's always life-giving. It's always so encouraging. And most of all, it's true. Um, so Lord God, uh, bless everyone here, God, uh, with a hundredfold blessing. Uh, do something in their hearts that uh, far exceeds uh, expectations. Uh, you've made us new. May newness break forth in all that we do. And Lord, teach us to be uh, meditators of that which is eternal. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so we want that forever in our hearts. Um, so Lord God, uh, bless us and give us security in uh, the difficulties that we face. We pray these things then in Christ's name. Amen.